We are in Joshua chapter 21 again this week. So if you open your Bibles to Joshua 21. We are only going to read 12 verses today. Joshua 21, 43 through 45 and chapter 22, verses 1 through 9. Joshua 21.43 And the Lord gave unto Israel all the land which He sware to give unto their fathers, and they possessed it and dwelt therein. And the Lord gave them rest round about, according to all that He sware unto their fathers. And there stood not a man of all their enemies before them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. There failed not aught of any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel. All came to pass. Then Joshua called the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said unto them, Ye have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I commanded you. Ye have not left your brethren these many days unto this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God hath given rest unto your brethren, as he promised them. Therefore now return ye and get you unto your tents, and unto the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side, Jordan. But take diligent heed to do the commandment and the law, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, charged you, to love the Lord your God, and to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments, and to cleave unto him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went unto their tents. Now to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given possession in Bashan, but the other half thereof gave Joshua among their brethren on this side Jordan westward. And when Joshua sent them away also unto their tents, then he blessed them. And he spake unto them, saying, Return with much riches unto your tents, and with very much cattle, with silver, and with gold, and with brass, and with iron, and with very much raiment. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brethren." The children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned and departed from the children of Israel out of Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go unto the country of Gilead, to the land of their possession, whereof they were possessed, according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. Let's pray. Father, I ask today that your word would strengthen us, that we would remove all doubt, any doubt that we would have about your ability to perform that which you have promised. We ask your blessing on this study. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we got through the first 42 verses of chapter 21, which really was the completion of the the distribution of the land, the last... Distribution was to the Levites. So now we come to verse number 43, and this is the climax of the whole book of Joshua. Um, We've been studying this for over six months, and the first 21 chapters are all leading up to this. Uh, This is what the first 21 chapters are about. It's all about bringing us to the place where we 
recognize and understand that God kept His promises, that God keeps His Word, even if it's 430 years later. Turn back to Genesis chapter 15. I want to review the the promise, the original promise made to Abraham. Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. Joshua 21.43 says they possessed the land and they dwelt in it. Both of those are true. Genesis 15.13, And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. And that nation, of course, we know is Egypt. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So at this point, God is telling Abraham that he's going to give the Amorites 400 more years to repent and to change their ways. Now, when we get to Joshua chapter 21, verse 43, it's all over. They, their time has run out. God's patience had run out. They no longer have the opportunity to repent. Verse 17, And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed passed between those pieces. In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. And we know that river is not the Nile, it's the Wadi El Arish River. We've gone over that several times the southwestern border of the of the land of Canaan, of the promised land, was that river. And the northeastern border was the river Euphrates. And then verses 19 through 21, God further clarifies which land he was speaking to Abraham about by listing all of those people groups that resided in that land, in and around the Jordan River. And if you, if you still have that map that I distributed, the, I think the first week we, we began this study, that shows where all of those groups of people were. So now when we get to Joshua chapter 21, this promise has been fulfilled. That land which God promised to Abraham 430 years earlier has been delivered. It has been given to the children of Israel. Turn to to Genesis 17. Genesis 17 verse 8. And we could actually look at numerous verses in, in throughout the book of Genesis. I just want to look at one more, though, that, that really makes it clear. He says, And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So God had given that land, of, that land to Abraham, and it was to be the land of Israel forever. So God keeps His promises, unlike... Unlike men, we, we sometimes fail, many times fail to keep our word, but as we study Scripture, we find that that is never the case with God. And one of the commentaries that I have been using is, is a commentary by Dale Ralph Davis, and it's actually called No Falling Words. No Falling Words, and that's taken literally from these three verses here in, Gen- in Joshua 21. That not a single word which God had spoke failed to come true. Now, if you turn back to, if you're back in Joshua 21, verse 44, verse 44 is probably the one that causes people the most difficulty, the most trouble. 
in terms of a perceived contradiction. It says, then the Lord gave them rest round about. Well, that's true. I mean, even though there are still Canaanites in the land, they're not aggressive. They're passive. They're not actively pursuing the Israelites. They're actually in hiding. They're in retreat. And the Lord gave, and the Lord gave them rest round about according to all that he swore unto their fathers. And there stood not a man of all their enemies before them. Now, you may have a note in your Bible there. The word before actually would probably be better translated against. There were Canaanites standing before them. I mean, they were there. We know from several of the previous chapters that we read that they had been made servants and slaves and they had been put under tribute. So, I mean, they were present in the land to a certain extent, but they weren't aggressive against the Israelites. They weren't standing against the Israelites. And many, many of the other translations use that word. They say there stood not a man of all their enemies against them. And that is certainly true. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. If you turn to Joshua 23, just a page or two over, Joshua 23, verse 1, we know that there was a prolonged period of rest. It says, And it came to pass a long time after that the Lord had given rest unto Israel from all their enemies round about that Joshua waxed old and stricken in age. There was probably about two decades that passed between the, the end of the conquering, the end of the seven year campaign, and then as we near the life of the, the end of the life of Joshua as he's reaching age 110. And so there was a prolonged period of rest during those probably about the last two decades of Joshua's life. Look at Joshua 23.12. Again, obviously this is the same writer. There's no contradiction here with Joshua chapter 21. Start in verse 11, it says, Take good heed therefore unto yourselves that ye love the Lord your God. This is Joshua speaking. Else if ye do in any wise go back and cleave unto the remnant of these nations, even these that remain among you. So the writer isn't surprised that there are Canaanites that still remain. No, he refers to them. He says there's a remnant of Canaanites. But they're not aggressive. They're not actively pursuing the Israelites. They, they have relinquished the land. Israel is in complete control. So there's no contradiction in, in Joshua 21 in, in its stating that God has delivered on His promises. Uh, you know, sometimes we fail to take delivery of God's promises. God promised everyone a Savior, and yet many people have refused to accept Christ as their Savior. God is not the one who has failed to deliver on that promise. People have failed to receive it. This verse 44, Joshua 21, 40, 44, also demonstrates another pattern throughout Scripture. And that is that there's only rest when God's enemies are defeated. And we will not have our final rest until God's enemies have all been defeated. We, we sometimes pray, Thy kingdom come, which the Lord instructed us to do, but yet we don't probably always really think through, really, what does all that mean? I mean, when we say, when we pray thy kingdom come, we're asking for God to come and judge this world and destroy it. And to banish all sinners and those who have rejected the gospel to eternity in hell. But, you know, nevertheless, that day is coming. It's being prolonged. God is being patient, but it's, it's not going to be prolonged forever. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 6 through 9, Paul comforts the Thessalonians who are being persecuted by telling them that God is someday going to destroy all of their enemies with a flaming fire. Paul tells them to take joy and comfort in that. Not in necessarily in the death of those, but just in knowing that they're going to be vindicated and that God's vengeance is going to be 
poured out on his enemies. That's what's going to happen someday. Verse number 45, and, and this is really where the, the, the emphasis becomes really, you know, really great. It's emphatic and that there, God's word has not failed in any way. There has not a single word failed of all of God's promises. And that's what the writer wants us to grasp. Turn to Joshua chapter 23, verse 14. We see really the same thing here. It says, and behold, again, this is Joshua exhorting the people. It says, and behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth. And ye know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing hath failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spake concerning you. All are come to pass unto you, and not one thing hath failed thereof. The Bible is a continuous story of God's faithfulness. It's a continuous story of God keeping His promises. Our hope for eternal life is, that's what our faith is based on. It's believing that God will keep His word, that He will keep His promises. Turn to Acts chapter 13. I just want to take a little bit of a diversion and, and just underscore the, the fact that God does keep His promises. We're going to look at a few passages here in the New Testament. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verses 14 through 43 are Paul's sermon in Antioch. And primarily, the sermon is about Paul mentioning to these people, proclaiming to these people that God keeps His promises. Notice in verse 23. Of this man's seed hath God, according to His promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. Paul saying God promised a Savior from the seed of David. And Paul and Paul saying God delivered on that promise. Verses 32-34. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promises which were made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children. In that He hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten Thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. So here Paul says God promise, God's promises to the fathers were fulfilled. God's promise of the resurrection was fulfilled. Turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, of course referring to the promises made to Abraham and the realization of those promises. Through Abraham's faith. Romans 4, 13 through 25. We're just going to look at verses 20 and 21. Abraham believed God's promises. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Hebrews chapter 6. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. For what God, for when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. 
wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by these two immutable things, God's word and God's oath are unchangeable. They're immutable. That by these two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have is an anchor of the soul. So the writer here in Hebrews is telling these people, these, these persecuted people that are about ready to give up, he's saying, God's track record of unbroken promises is what, is, it should bring you extreme comfort. If you have any doubt what, you shouldn't have any doubt whatsoever about whether or not you're going to obtain eternal life. God is, is able to perform that which He has promised. He's making it abundantly clear here. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 is full of the promises of God. Second Peter chapter 3, verse number 3, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Verse number 8, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. Some people are very troubled by the fact that God has promised the Lord is going to return. Two thousand years have gone by. Two thousand years is not a long time to God. That's really the point of verse number 8. Verse number 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness. But is long suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. As some men count slackness, God doesn't measure time the same way we do. Men are impatient. God is not impatient. The fact that it has taken two thousand years for the Lord and, and the Lord hasn't yet returned should not be troubling to us. God is God has His own timetable. Verse number 11, Seeing then that all these things should be, shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. So we're to live as though we believe these promises are going to be fulfilled. Our conduct is to demonstrate that. All Scripture, and I mean, I've just pulled out a few, all Scripture is given to strengthen our faith and to cause us to believe that God is going to keep His Word. You know, these, all of these verses, all of these passages, these letters should be of great comfort to us. I mean, what a great time to be alive. I mean, Abraham didn't have all of the promises of God that we do. I mean, we're not even aware that Abraham had any previous promises of God spoken to him other than the one that was given to him. When David was communing with God, he didn't have all of the knowledge that we do of God's track record. The first century Christians didn't have all of the knowledge that we do. We have the entire Bible, which is to strengthen our faith, to let us know that God has a proven track record of keeping all of His promises. I mean, we just have a tremendous amount of Scripture to build up our faith and to support our faith. You don't have to turn to Genesis 3.15, but Genesis 3.15 contains some of the 
original promises of God. In Genesis 3.15, God promised a Savior. He didn't deliver that Savior until 4,000 years later. So, you know, whether it's waiting 430 years for the promised land, or 4,000 years for the Savior, or another 2,000 years already, and the Savior hasn't returned, or whether it's waiting 6,000 years for the other part of Genesis 3.15 to be fulfilled, where God says He is going to crush Satan. I mean, certainly that was really done when, when Christ died on the cross, but ultimately Satan hasn't been crushed to the extent that he is going to be at, you know, and it's been 6,000 years. And yet, the Bible says we're not to doubt God's Word whatsoever. All of His promises are going to be fulfilled. Many of them have been fulfilled. Our faith is not to waver. 2 Timothy 1.12, you don't need to turn there, but Paul said, I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed. Why was Paul persuaded? How could he be persuaded? He was persuaded by the, by the Word of God. He could look back over all of history and see God's perfect record of unbroken promises. And then it was, you know, Paul had no doubt whatsoever about his future salvation. Turn back to Joshua chapter 21. So again, these three verses, Joshua 21, 43 through 45, are really the, the, the climax of the book, the culmination of everything that has taken place up to this point. They shouldn't be troubling to us at all. We shouldn't have any doubt that God delivered on His promises. Any, these three verses are a, a statement about the faithfulness of God. They're not a statement about the faithfulness of God's people. I mean, really, that's the distinction. Any, any doubt that we have as to, as to the accuracy of these verses uh, doesn't cast any, any doubt on God's ability to, to promise them. God kept His Word. Now, we will, you will see through all throughout the Old Testament, there are times when this land was relinquished. You know, to a certain extent, these prom, part, uh, some of these promises were conditional. They were, each generation was responsible for being faithful to the Lord. God removed them from the land on various occasions. Sometimes they were carted off to Assyria or Babylon during those captivities. But ultimately, God would bring them back. That doesn't undermine Genesis 15 or 17, 8, where God said He had given this land to Abraham as an everlasting possession. Just because God had given the land to Abraham as an everlasting possession didn't mean that there weren't going to be times when God would judge His people and they would be removed from that land. So again, these three verses are a statement about God's faithfulness, not, not a statement about the faithfulness of God's people. We don't need to doubt in any way the accuracy of these statements. Anyone have anything they want to contribute before we, we move on to chapter 22? Chapter 22 begins the, the last three chapters are primarily about Joshua uh, giving warnings to the people to remain faithful to God, to cling to the covenant. The first nine verses address specifically the two and a half tribes. That's what happens here in verse 1. Joshua calls those two and a half tribes. He commends them in verse number 2. He says, "...ye have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you." So, so Joshua certainly acknowledges that. Uh, we looked, I think, the second or third week of this study, we looked at Numbers 32-32, in which they completely 
uh, gave their full assent, you know, affirmation that they were going to do exactly what Moses had asked them to do. Once Moses granted them the land on the east side of the Jordan River, he told them they were going to have to go and fight on the other side of the Jordan River, and they agreed wholeheartedly to do that. Turn back to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua reiterates the same thing that Moses had said to them. In Joshua chapter 1, he, he reminds them again of their, of their responsibility to keep their word. Joshua chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. It says, And to the Reubenites, and to the Gadites, and to half the tribe of Manasseh spake Joshua, saying, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God hath given you rest, and hath given you this land. And of course, that land is the land east of the Jordan River. Your wives, your little ones, and your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side, Jordan. But ye shall pass before your brethren armed all the mighty men of valor, and help them. Until the Lord have given your brethren rest as he hath given you, and they also have possessed the land which the Lord your God giveth them, then ye shall return unto the land of your possession and enjoy it which Moses the Lord's servant gave you on this side Jordan toward the sun rising. And they answered Joshua saying, All that thou commandest us we will do. Same thing they told Moses. And whithersoever thou sendest us we will go. According as we hearken unto Moses in all things, so will we hearken unto thee. Only the Lord thy God be with thee as he was with Moses. Whosoever he be that doth, doth rebel against thy commandment and will not hearken unto thy words in all that thou commandest him, he shall be put to death, only be strong and of a good courage. So Joshua commends them for their complete... Here in Joshua chapter 22, Joshua commends them for their complete obedience. They had made a promise and they kept that promise. You know, it's a great reminder to us. Do we keep our promises? I mean, we live in a nation. You know, we uh, television was on this morning, and, and I don't even know, you know, there's already political, you know, election commercials running. Everybody's got a promise that they're going to make. And if you've paid much attention to politics, you know that a lot of them are going to be broken, if not almost all of them. I mean, men are unfaithful. They're not like God. We don't keep our word all the time. But, but God does. And these people did. These two and a half tribes kept their word. And that's what verse 3, chapter 22, verse 3 says. They were not only faithful to Moses and Joshua, but they were also faithful to the Lord. They kept their promise to God, which, of course, is much more important. Verse number 3, Joshua also says, You have left your brethren these many days. Well, that, I mean, is really quite an understatement. It was at least seven years. That's 2,500 days. That's how long they were away. The way this verse is worded, You have not left your brethren these many days unto this day. And chapter 1, I... You might have noticed I emphasized that Joshua had said to them in chapter 1, you will go over across the Jordan River and you will fight until they have rest on the other side of the river. And Joshua says there in chapter 1, and you will not go home until that rest has been obtained. Now, I can't be dogmatic, but chapter 1 and then this verse here, verse 3, seem to imply that 
they never went home during the entire seven years. I don't know that for sure, but it seems that that was the case. That's a long time not to see your your wives and your children. I talked with my mom this week, and she was born in 1942, and, and my grandpa was in World War II, and he was gone for about three or four years. He got home in October of 1945, and his he had actually been given a few leaves, though, so he wasn't gone for three or four years continuously, most of those three or four years. And my mom's sister, Sharon, was nine months old before he saw her. And, you know, that was the kind of sacrifices that was made. Um, you know, I ran into Janelle out in the foyer a couple of months ago, and I said, when's Nate coming back? And she said, six months is a long time. It really wasn't the question that I asked, but I knew exactly what she was talking about. You know, this is seven years. This is a tremendous sacrifice. They have been separated from their families, as, as we saw in chapter 1, their wives and their little ones. So Joshua is commending them for their faithfulness, for keeping their promise. I'm not really able to relate. I, I, the longest I've been away from my wife is 16 days when we went to Peru. Um, I don't know what it would be like to be away for six months or six years. Uh, tremendous sacrifice. But there's a lesson here. I mean, obviously several lessons, but one of the lessons here in verse 3 is obedience is possible even if the battle is long. Sometimes we just want everything to be easy and quick. We don't want to commit for the long haul. These, these 40,000 valiant warriors were unwavering. They, they fulfilled their promise to the letter. God demands perseverance from us. Desertion should never be an option. That's what Paul said. Paul says, I'd rather depart and be with the Lord, which is far better. But he says, I'm not going to desert the Lord here on earth. I'm going to do what God has called me to do and stick it out to the end. That's what we're called to do. We're called to be faithful here on earth. Another pattern we see here in Joshua is that of commendation. Joshua frequently throughout the book commends people for their faithfulness and for having kept their word and fulfilling their responsibilities. We don't serve the Lord to, you know, have praise heaped on us from men, but that doesn't mean that there aren't times when it's appropriate. Everybody appreciates a thank you, an expression of gratitude, an expression of appreciation for having done something and done it well and done it faithfully and done it, you know, for a long time and enduringly. And that's what Joshua does here. He commends these people. That's consistent throughout the New Testament. Paul, in many of his letters, before he would criticize or instruct believers in areas where they needed improvement, he would start his letters by commending them for those things that they were doing well. Jesus does the same thing in the book of Revelation and the letters to the churches. Starts out giving all of them commendation for the things they're doing well and then takes them to task for the things that he says I have against you. But 
There's nothing wrong with commending people. Obviously, if it's true. We're not trying to, you know, flatter people by saying things that aren't true. I mean, this what Josh was saying to these people is absolutely true. Their, their commitment was unwavering. They were faithful. Verse number four says, And now the Lord your God hath given rest unto your brethren as He promised them. In the same way that those men were faithful, certainly God also was faithful. God is always faithful. And so then Joshua tells them it's now finally time for them to return to their land on the east side of the Jordan River. But before they go, Joshua has some instructions to give them, some encouragement to give them. Notice verse number 5. It says, But take diligent heed to do the commandment and the law. Take diligent heed. Heed means forethought, planning, effort. Faithfulness doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen. It requires effort. It requires thought. We have to resolve that there are certain things that we are going to do. We have to resolve that there are certain things that we aren't going to do. But it it doesn't just happen accidentally. What can we do to remain faithful to the Lord? Well, we're going to see kind of a big debate about that next week when we get into the, the, the rest of chapter 22, but certainly remaining faithful to a good church goes a long ways towards remaining faithful to the Lord. I mean, most of us would easily admit that most of our knowledge of God is acquired in church. Maybe not all of it. And maybe that's not true of everyone, but for most people, I suspect that's pretty true. Our knowledge of God is acquired while we are here. So it's very important to be supportive of a good church. Joshua gives them six instructions to encourage them here in in verse number five. The first one there is is the one we already read. He says, take diligent, diligent heed to do the commandment in the law. Never enough just to know it. Just head knowledge. It says they got to do it. It doesn't do any good to have it memorized or to know what it says if, if there's no commitment to it. There's no commitment to do it. The second thing he says they need to do is they need to love the Lord. Love God. The third thing he says they need to do is walk in all His ways. Be proactive. Again, it doesn't faithfulness doesn't just happen. It's... There's an effort involved. The fourth thing he says is to be obedient. Not only to the things that they should do, but to the thou shalt nots. They need to know the difference. They need to know what God expects of them. The fifth thing they says is they need to cleave unto Him. Make God the focus of everything that they do. Everything that they do. Every decision that we make we should understand what impact that's going to have on our relationship with the Lord. And the last thing he says is to serve Him faithfully. Don't just claim allegiance to God, but actually demonstrate, show allegiance to God, prove allegiance to God. Words are easy. Words can be easily spoken. But service 
translating those words into action, that's a lot more difficult. That's what Joshua asks them to do. Then in verse number 6, Joshua blesses them. Speaks kindly to them. Asks God to prosper them. Then sends them away. We could easily glance over this. Separation is sometimes God's will. We think nothing of a river. I don't think of the Missouri River as any kind of a barrier between the zillions of times I cross it. Um, It was certainly a barrier then. Um, Some of these people that were going to be living east of the Jordan River would have been as many as 50 to 100 miles apart, even within the same tribe. You know, the, the eastern half of the tribe of Manasseh would have been 50 or 100 miles apart from portions of the western half of the tribe of Manasseh, also having the river separating them. It was, it was, a, it was an obstacle. I mean, they would know that when they left, they, you know, they don't know how often they would see each other. Um, and we don't know exactly how that tribe was divided. We don't know if brothers and sisters were split up. We don't know if cousins were split up. But we don't know. I mean, we're never given the specifics. I remember, I, I remember my grandma always talking about she, she was a teenager during the Great Depression. And so they sent her to live in Pennsylvania. And her mom was convinced she'd never see her again. Back then, that was like a foreign country. You know, her mom had pretty much never left the state of Iowa. So to to send a child away to Pennsylvania just seemed like, you know, that's what her mom said. Oh, I don't think you're ever coming back. And nowadays, you know, 1,200 miles, nothing. I drove it in one day a week ago. I mean, you know, and I every time I go to Houston, I'm there in less than two hours. Distance is not the barrier today that it was then, so... You know, sometimes we need to orient ourselves with what the mindset would have been back at those times. You know, travel was so much more difficult and so much, it took so much more to accomplish. And so, you know, the distance between people at that time, you know, so much different than what we would think of as today. We don't, we don't really think of it. I mean, we travel all the way across the world without much difficulty. Verse number 8 says, He spake unto them, saying, Return with much riches unto your tents, and with very much cattle, with silver, with gold, with brass, with iron, with very much raiment. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brethren. God had prospered them. Moses had commanded them in Numbers 31 to be fair in the distribution of the spoils of war. Now Joshua is reiterating that again. And he says, you're to share what you have taken with those who stayed behind. Last part of the verse, divide the spoil of your enemies with your brethren. Certainly the, the sacrifice that was made by those that had gone and done the fighting was a tremendous sacrifice. Some had given their lives. But others that had stayed behind also sacrificed. They provided for those wives and children of the men that had gone and protected the wives and children of the men that had gone. And, they, and you know, a, a fair distribution. We don't have time to go back to Numbers 31, but Moses had emphasized that. 
once this campaign was all over with and they were and they were settled down and rest, they were supposed to take everything and divide it up equally and, and, and fairly and distribute it. And then uh, there's no shame with having obtained this stuff. God intended for them to have it. God intended them for them to, to have these things. First uh, Corinthians nine seven, who goeth to warfare at his own charge. This was to this was to pay for a lot of what had already been spent to make this possible. Um, every time I read about this kind of stuff, I always I, I, I keep coming back to Achan, chapter seven. Look at the list here in verse eight. Cattle, silver, gold, brass, iron, raiment. Very much raiment. Doesn't seem like there's any doubt that if Achan had been patient, he would have got a lot more than he took. If he would have been content with God's timing and not been impatient, not been greedy, and not wanted to cheat, and had been willing to earn it, he would have got so much more. I mean, you know, we're told what he got in chapter seven. We're not told exactly what this is, but I just think it was it would have been a whole lot more. What a foolish, rash decision that he made to try to circumvent the proper procedures for obtaining all of this stuff. Verse number nine. And the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned and departed from the children of Israel out of Shiloh. And that's probably significant because that's going to come to play next week. Shiloh was the, the central place of worship. That was where they were commanded to return three times a year. That was where they were to bring certain types of sacrifices. Departed from the children of Israel out of Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go unto the country of Gilead, to the land of their possession, whereof they were possessed, according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. And again, this is you know, stated numerous times throughout the book that the, the land that was, and we're, we're going to see it yet again in chapter 24, that the land that had been given to the two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan River was given to them by God. It was God's will for them to have it. It didn't mean that there weren't going to be obstacles and, and impediments to, you know, to being faithful and, and returning to Shiloh, but nevertheless, they, they were to have it. All right, we are, we are done. Uh, anyone have anything they want to contribute? Dave. Ephraim.
Yeah, and I would imagine the same thing would have been true of them that is true of us. Some were much more faithful than others. Anyone else? Glenn. Well, one of the things that we talked about in, I think, the second or third week is that there is a, I don't know what percentage, but there is a, a, there's a, a portion of the Jewish people that believe that God has been unfaithful. They are still looking for the fulfillment of God's promise to the extent that they believe that God's going to give them every square mile of land for the entire length of the Nile River to the entire length of the Euphrates River. I don't think God ever promised that. But a lot of them believe that, which has infuriated the Arabs. And I think the Arabs have a legitimate gripe because I, I don't see that that's I, I don't see that that's what the scripture holds. Um, so, I mean, you know, to, to one extent, I think that some would probably view the fact that they have the nation of Israel today is, is relatively close to what the promised land proper was back in those times. You know, with the exception, you know, there's parts of Lebanon that they don't have that they clearly had here in the book of Joshua. So some of them would probably, you know, if, if they believe that the promised land proper really is the, you know, the, the extent of God's promise, then they would think that maybe God was faithful. But for a lot of them, I know they believe that they're just going to get so much more in the future. And I, I haven't, I just can't come to that conclusion. I don't think scripture supports it. Somebody over here, Joel. Well, what I'm saying is, is God, in, in Genesis 17:8, God had promised it as an everlasting possession to Abraham's descendants. So, in this, it, when they were removed during the Babylonian captivity, for example, for seven, 70 years, it was still, you know, it's still Abraham's in the big picture. But there's, there aren't actually people living in it and dwelling in it at that time. And so, there are times when God has removed the people from the land, and then He He always brings them back. And I, and that's why I I think that Genesis 17:8 certainly is true that it is an everlasting possession. Even though sometimes each individual generation is responsible for their own faithfulness to God, and and really the last three chapters that we're going to look at, that's really what Joshua's warning is to these people through 20 chapters 22 through 24. That's what he's going to say to these people: You'd better be faithful to the Lord. If you forsake the Lord, He's going to kick you out of this land. He's going to take it from you. But that doesn't mean that he won't bring future generations back. So, you know, again, an individual generation would maybe not necessarily have the promise of God, but in the big picture, you know, it's still an everlasting possession for Abraham's descendants. I hope that clears it up. Anyone else?